Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. So today, as promised, and probably for at least two more weeks, I will be speaking on the subject of healing. Um, I want to look at miracles of healing. I want to look at the covenant of healing, and I want to look at healing faith. So there are at least three sermons there to preach, probably more, certainly possibly more. And I wrestled a little bit with the order uh, in, you know, should I start with the covenant and then move on to faith and then look at miracles or how to mix these up? But, you know, if I overthought things like that too much, <laughs> uh, we wouldn't have prayed for the sick last week because I wasn't speaking about healing, and I knew I was going to speak about healing, so why, why not wait a week? In fact, I would probably say, let's wait until we get through at least three sermons, get everybody pumped, ready, and ready to receive, and then just pray at the end of the series. But no, I believe we're just supposed to continue to pray for the sick while we preach these messages, even starting last week, which wasn't necessarily a healing message. Uh, but I do believe, I know some people uh, did receive uh, from God during that, uh, that time of prayer and laying on of hands. So today, what we're going to look at are miracles. Miracles. One definition of the word miracle, a pretty good one, I think, offered by Webster's is, an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. A miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. Now, it might be harder than you think to classify certain biblical events as miracles or non-miracles. And I'm remembered of something that was, it seemed like every time I turned around, every time I opened up my email or Facebook or something, somebody had posted this quote, and they always either attributed it to Einstein or C.S. Lewis, and I'm pretty sure neither one of them said it. But here's the quote. There are two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle, and the other is as though everything is. And I guess the reason I dug in my heels against, every time I saw it attributed to C.S. Lewis, I would say, it doesn't sound like anything C.S. Lewis would say. And I hated the quote. What do you mean everything? Why why is it all or nothing? I don't look at life like that. I'm a guy who believes there are things that happen every day that are not miraculous. But I'm also a guy who believes that miracles happen. What does this quote even mean? But now I get it. What they're saying is, If there is a God and everything that we see is here because God created everything, then technically everything is a miracle. We get that, right? I mean, does that make sense? I mean, if if, if we're here because God created us, then everything's a miracle. But uh, if you look at the quote-unquote miracle of creation, was it a miracle? Well, it was certainly utterly supernatural that God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. But was it uh, a divine intervention into human affairs? No. There were no humans when God created the heavens and the earth. I like the way, here's the way I see it. When God created everything, that includes all the physical laws of the universe. God created light and the speed of light. He created gravity. He created the laws of motion. All of these things. And sustains these things by the word of his power. Tony Evans, when he talked about the difference between a miracle and what's not a miracle, he says, there are certain phrases that bother me, and I'm not going to say it like Tony Evans. I would hurt my throat. 
uh, because he shouts his whole sermons and he's fun to listen to. But I can't do that! I certainly can't do it for half an hour! But he'd say, when people talk about the miracle of childbirth, he says, I know what you mean. It's something wonderful, it's powerful, it's exciting, but it's not a miracle. It's exactly the way God created it to be. When a man and a woman come together and they conceive a child and the woman gives birth to a child, that is natural because this is how God created nature. He says, now if a woman, if a man and woman come together and they conceive and a woman gives birth to an elephant, that's a miracle. That's outside the laws of nature. Laws of nature have to be suspended in order for it to be classified as miraculous. So not everything that's supernatural is a miracle. Does that make sense? Because there's certainly the whole birth process and, and conceiving, that's all supernatural because God originally set it all into motion. Now, uh, so we have to acknowledge that up front that God made it all and he set these uh, physical laws including their boundaries, into motion. And a miracle is something that overrides, overpowers, or suspends these laws on behalf of someone or some people. So, for instance, we could look at Abraham. We could look at Joseph. And we can see examples of extraordinary guidance and protection and God ushering them into certain roles. Uh, for instance, when uh, Abraham and Sarah, you know, when, when Sarah gives birth to, to Isaac past the age of childbearing. This is a miracle, but we have examples of that kind of thing, people having children extraordinarily late in life here and now, leaving God out of the picture. And we also take into consideration that Abraham and Sarah lived at a time when people lived longer anyway. Now, the Scripture clearly tells us this is a supernatural childbirth because it says they were past the age of childbearing. But when we really begin to see an extraordinary outpouring of obvious miracles is when, uh, when, we, when we look at the miracles in the Exodus or the, the, the plagues leading up to the Exodus. Uh, well, both really. The plagues, the signs that God did, the signs that, that God told Moses to do in Pharaoh's court, then the plagues, and then the miracles of provision and protection for all those years out in the wilderness. For, for a compressed time of 40-ish years, there was a lot that God was doing. Divine intervention, extraordinary acts intervening in human affairs. And I want to point out, first of all, that God did those things more or less unilaterally. I mean, they were God initiative. Uh, they, they, they God did not, Moses didn't say, hey, God, I got an idea. Will you do this on my behalf? Will you use me? Will you cause uh, the, the rod that Aaron throws on the ground to turn into a snake and gobble up these others? These were all God's ideas. He just told Moses, you go before Pharaoh and say this, and I'm going to do it. But some miracles were responses to the prayers of the people. Water from the rock. I mean, sometimes it was prayer, sometimes it was whining. Uh, what about when he brought quail in abundance? But even in the case of the quail, he didn't create quail. The quail were there. He brought them in with wind, which was a thing. He just caused them all to come in. It was supernatural. And it qualifies as a miracle, but he used natural means to bring them about because they wanted meat. 
he didn't suspend the laws of nature in that case. He simply manipulated them. Then you think of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Now there's a miracle for the sake of a miracle. And it's one of the greatest stories. It's a story I, use, I would read. One, it's one of the very first, not the first. I think the first time, this is getting off track, but this is a short message anyway. Uh, and I believe mom may have been my Sunday school teacher at the time. I was little, probably fifth grade, fourth, fifth grade. And we're reading a story of Samson uh, in the Bible. And we had just gotten, the family had gotten just within probably a year or so of that before that, the living Bible, a readable Bible. And we read just part, one little part of the story of Samson in the Bible, and I was so fascinated that as soon as we got home, I asked where was that story in the Bible so I could read the rest of it. And I was the same way with, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount, Mount Carmel. Those are two of the earliest Bible stories I remember digging into on my own as a kid. But, I mean, this is it. I mean, he assembles this mass of the prophets of Baal and has them build. He builds two altars. He builds one. They build one. They call down fire and the fire comes down when, when Elijah calls on Jehovah and gobbles up both sacrifices and it's, it's extraordinary. And both of these things were done in response to the faithful obedience of men of God in dire circumstances. I'm talking about Elijah. Uh, oh, the, the other one, of course, the fiery furnace. Uh, there's a miracle that actually suspended the laws of nature. You've got four, uh, three guys thrown into a furnace that, that was so hot it killed the guys throwing them into it. And they were unharmed. This is a total suspension of the laws of nature. And when it comes right down to it, you'd rather be in the fire in the presence of God than out of the fire outside of his presence, right? Uh, but this, the, the, the Hebrew children in the fire, Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, these are two things that happened. They were miracles that happened in response to the faithful obedience of men of God. Now, there are also, of course, miracles of healing that were done in the Old Testament. Uh, most notably, perhaps, was the mass healing of the children of Israel. Remember, they were, they were uh, rebelling, and God sent snakes among them. These poisonous vipers, excuse me, venomous, venomous vipers, were released among them and started biting the people, and people started dying. And then Moses was told to fashion this rod with a serpent on it and held, uh, of brass and held it up and everyone who looked at it with a steady absorbent gaze instead of looking down at the snakes that were slithering around their ankles was healed. And, uh, but we also have uh, Miriam's healing of leprosy. We have Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead who had died of sickness. And Naaman the Syrian was healed of leprosy all miraculously. That's not the end of the Old Testament miracles and healings, not by a long shot, but I want to fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus, of course, and mainly. A uh, couple of things, and they're obvious things, I want to point out, not because you don't know them, but because they need to be nailed down. Uh, Jesus did miracles other than healing, didn't he? He walked on the water, uh, the coin in the fish's mouth, uh, feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000, etc. But everywhere he went... What did he do? When he went about doing good, he went about teaching, preaching, and healing. These are the things he did everywhere he went. The healing was inseparable from the gospel of the kingdom that he was teaching and preaching. Uh-oh, I got a low battery notification, so now I got to speed it up. So anyway, <laughs> one of the biggest mistakes that people by the millions have made is to assume or believe because they've been taught that Jesus did his miracles 
primarily or only to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. Now, did they serve that purpose? Yes. Jesus himself referred to that. You remember in John 10 when the Jewish leaders were confronting him. They're getting ready to stone him. And he says, uh, before you start throwing the rocks, tell me, which of the good works that I've done are you stoning me for? Because even they couldn't deny that he was healing people and doing good, doing miracles. He said, these are good works. Which one of them are you killing me for? He said, we're not killing you for that, Jesus. We're killing you because you make yourself out to be God. And he said, look at what I'm doing. I'm doing the works of my Father And if I am, then you need to believe the words of my mouth. If you don't believe the things I'm saying, at least believe in me because of the works that I'm doing. Interesting how he phrased that, because he didn't say, hey, I'm doing these works to prove that what I'm saying is right. He's saying, I'm saying things that people need to hear, and I'm accompanying these things with powerful works that are clearly from God. You can see that these are godly works. No man ever opened the sight of somebody born blind. So if, you, so if the, what he's saying, what these works should do is at least cause you to think about what I'm saying. And if, and if the words themselves don't make sense, then believe on me because of the miracles. Very, very important to recognize that the only time, I mean, Jesus didn't ask for anybody's papers, didn't ask for their qualifications. People came to him for healing and he healed them. The only time he refused to do a miracle, and this happened more than once, was when somebody came up and said, do a miracle to prove that you are who you say you are. Show us a sign. And then he wouldn't. I'll give you a sign, but it'll be the sign of Jonah. I'll be in the earth three days, and then I'll come out. It's an evil generation, he said, that seeks a sign. And yet he was generous. It wasn't like he was stingy with the miracles that he did. He did them all the time, especially healings everywhere he went. But when pressed to do it as a sign, he didn't. What do I draw from this? Simply this, that that's not why Jesus healed. Why did he heal? Because he loved people, because he was moved with compassion to heal individuals and to heal multitudes. But they were miraculous healings, all recorded in the Bible. And they include healings from blindness, muteness, paralysis, disfigurement, internal diseases, birth defects, and even injuries. We have biblical examples of healing, Jesus healing, all of those things. And the vast, overwhelming majority of these cases, these healing miracles, were for the people of God who came to God the Son to be healed. Now, those two things, those two details, figure into the covenant of healing and faith for healing. In other words, they were God's people, so they did have a covenant, whether they recognized it or not, and They came to Jesus believing they'd be healed, so they had faith. And those are two sermons for the next few weeks here. Uh, We will get into that, even beyond, healing even beyond the miraculous. My goal in this series is ultimately to increase your faith for healing without relying on the boom, something happened right now and everybody saw it moment, but to simply receive healing by faith because it's your portion. But also, I want to remind you and encourage you and stir you up this morning that God still does miracles. He delights in showing his power, his healing power to us, and we shouldn't be shy about asking for and expecting miracles when we need them. I said that even though I believe God's 
desire is for us to receive what he has given us by faith because he said it. He is still the same God. He still does miracles, and we should not be shy about asking for and expecting to receive miracles when we need them. Woo! This is a charismatic church, right? We believe in miracles, right? Okay. Now, and again, it's, there's a difference between saying, sure, God can, and boldly asking for them and expecting them, right? All right. Now, I want to look at one extraordinary miracle, and it's not a healing miracle, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's extraordinary anyway, and I want to, because I think there's some very important things about it that can encourage us. Uh, open your Bible to Joshua something, Joshua 10. We'll get there in a second. Uh, I think you remember the backstory. I'm assuming a lot here, but I want to get moving because I still want to pray for the sick when I'm done with the message. Uh, but after the 40 years of wandering, you know, their initial refusal, refusal to enter the land of promise, after 40 years, they finally, Joshua leads the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, and they begin to take the land, starting with the city of Jericho. Thank you. And then uh, they have this great victory at Jericho, turns out the walls come a-tumbling down on the seventh day. They march in there, and they're all flush with victory. They go into the second city, Ai, and they suffer defeat there because they didn't obey. They get into disobedience right away. So they get that straightened out, and they begin to move on. It's clear that they are going to march through the land and take it. God had set the boundaries. They knew where they were going, and little by little, they were going to take it. Now, what I want you to remember, oh man, so much going through my mind right now. When they went to Jericho, remember Rahab? Okay, uh, Rahab said what? Uh, we have heard about what happened to the cities beyond the river. They had been watching and getting rumors about this mass of people who had been on the other side of the river for 40 years. And they had done their research and found out about what God did to them and for them all the way back in Egypt. And what she say, the fear of you have, has fallen on all of us. We've seen what God is doing in your midst. We've seen his power. We've seen the defeat of everybody who got in your way. And we are all scared because we know what's coming. And Rahab was wise enough to seek protection and exemption from what was going to befall the rest of the city. But she wasn't the only one. The, the cities, we talk about these, the kings that surrounded them. These were city-states. They were big, great big cities, but they were all very localized. But they were all shaken in their boots. Word spread. That 40 years is plenty of time for the word to get around, even before Facebook. All right? So people, the rumors were circulating, and one king after another is beginning to fall. And then, uh, what's his face? I can't remember. Then one of these kings decides to get a coalition together of several of these cities and say, well, one by one these cities are falling, so let's, let's us get together and go fight Joshua. Meanwhile, one of the next cities in line, uh, Gibeon, Gibeon, they say, we, we're going to fall just like the rest of them. So they have a plan. They get this sneaky plan together, and it's really kind of brilliant. They get a uh, a squad of guys, platoon of guys, I don't remember how many, I don't even know if it, if it tells us how many. Uh, they, they mount up on their animals and they, they purposely, they stuff their bags with moldy bread and they, they, they take these cracked old wrinkled wineskins 
and they cover themselves with dust and they tear their clothes so that it looks like they traveled from halfway across the world. And they come to Joshua and they say, hey, boy, what a long, long trip we had from the other side of the world. We've heard what's going on over here on this side of the world and we just kind of wanted to say, hey, welcome to the neighborhood, even though we're not part of the neighborhood. Uh, we know that God's doing great things and he's causing all these other cities to fall. We just want you to know, when you get settled into this area, we want to be your friend. And by the way, we come from the other side of the world because look at our cracked wineskins and look at our moldy bread. These clothes, they were brand new when we left. Uh, this bread was fresh, break, fresh baked when we left. But look at it now. We've come a long, long way. We're sure not from around here. And so Joshua and the elders said, okay, good enough. You're not part of the land, obviously, that God's told us to conquer. And they enter into a treaty with them. And then Gibeon says, ha, ha, we're your neighbors and you can't attack us now because we have a treaty with you. This is almost exactly how it went down. And then Joshua finds out where they're from. He says, why would you do this to us? And they're like, because we, won't, we don't want to die like the people of Jericho. And Joshua says, we would not, we know you wouldn't have done it if you'd known. But listen, don't kill us. Don't break your treaty. We'll do whatever you want. He says, all right. So then they serve. Gibeon becomes the servant of Israel. They become the woodcutters, the water carriers. And then this happens. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the the uh, Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, found out. And he gathers three or four kings of other cities to go and attack Gibeon to punish them for entering this treaty with the bad guys, Joshua and the children of Israel. Joshua chapter 10, beginning in verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us, and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. Excuse me. So, now, I guess maybe if I was Joshua, I would say, Look, our treaty says we won't attack you. But I can't help it if your neighbors attack you. But a treaty is a treaty. Verse 7, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua, therefore, came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Haran, struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah, and it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, I am not an astrophysicist. But most of you know I do love astronomy. And for the record, even though I, am a, I believe the Bible 
I believe it's not symbolic. I believe it's an accurate recording of what God has said and done. Uh, I want you to know that I am not a flat earther. I know some, and I suppose it's possible that there are one or two here today, and I don't want to be offensive to you, so please don't be offended by me, and if you want to talk, I'd love to talk. But my observation, my next observations are rooted in the understanding and belief that the earth rotates on its axis, that the moon goes around the earth, and the earth revolves around the sun along with the rest of the planets in our solar system. Okay? Now, I was, this is only tangentially related, but you remember a couple years ago when Saturn and, and uh, Jupiter were like right next to each other in the sky, right over there. That, that part of the sky. And people were comparing it to the Star of Bethlehem. May have been, may not have been. Uh, but I understood why people said it. Because if you just sort of looked out the corner of your eye, it looked like one object. If you're looking right at it and, and your vision is decent, you could tell it was two. But they were so, so close together in the sky. It was a beautiful, beautiful sight. And be a long time before it happens again. And it all has to do with where they are in their orbits and where we are in relationship to their orbits. And I've known about this, and most of you have too. You know about the, the planetary orbits. And it's interesting, if you've never paid attention, if you're looking at the sky, because sometimes there's three, four planets you can see at one time. But they will go, you look at where the sun sets, and if you follow a line across the sky to where the sun rises, that's where the planets are, more or less. If you're looking at Jupiter and Saturn, or Saturn and Jupiter, Mars isn't going to be over here. It's going to be somewhere else on that plane. All right, so I began to look, especially when Saturn and Mars began to separate in the sky. And I'm trying to picture it in my head, because it's hard to do, because different times of day. But for that time of day, the sun has, was just below the horizon. And I'm trying to picture the direction that all of us are going around the sun, because we're all moving the same direction. And I finally grasped it. I realized, oh, we're all kind of going like this, at least that time of day. And, and it was just kind of this revelation how I could sort of understand that now I understand why Jupiter is further down toward the horizon at this time of day than it was a week ago and why Saturn and Jupiter are separated. I could picture what was causing this visual separation and it's all about us zipping through space and understanding it all has to do with understanding where you are as the earth rotates. Why the sky looks like it, like it does at 8 o'clock versus 1 in the morning. Why am I saying this? The earth is about 24,000 miles around at the equator. And it rotates on its axis every 24 hours. Meaning, at the equator, you are moving, the earth is moving at 1,000 miles an hour. That's math. Right, Rainy? We're good at math, aren't we? <laughs> so, for the sun to stand still in the sky, the earth has to stop. And if the earth stops, what happens? Because I guess what happens is, if you stop the earth suddenly anyway, the oceans all spill out and wash over the continents. If the earth is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, you're spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. Maybe not right here in Illinois. Maybe we're going eight or 900 miles an hour. But at the equator, it's 1,000 miles an hour. And if it stops, you're still moving 800 miles an hour, 900 miles an hour. What's going to happen to every building? 
Every animal, everything that's not life ends almost instantaneously if the earth stops. So what has to happen? Not only is it a big miracle that God halts the earth so that the sun stands still in the sky, but he has to suspend all the Newtonian laws of motion, all the laws of inertia, and everything in order for the atmosphere to stay in one place, for the oceans to stay in one place, for Joshua to keep his feet on the ground and all the animals and everything else to keep from falling down. Everything stops. And, and for the moon to stop in the sky has to stop the uh, tremendous devastation that, would, that, would, that, that any sort of tidal effects would have. The sun shining in one spot on the earth would have uh, unimaginable effects on the weather. And God suspends all of that. He organizes all the laws that he created when he created everything. He intervenes miraculously in human affairs. This was a, this is one, I can't imagine offhand, a bigger miracle in terms of its scope. So, Here's the thing, I really believe it happened. I'm not, that wasn't a preface for me to say, this really must represent something else. No, I think he really, I think God really did all that. Do you? So here's the next question. Who'd he do it for? Yeah, he did it for Joshua, but why? He did it to honor a treaty with the Gibeonites who were not God's people, and in fact, who had deceived God's people. God did one of the greatest miracles of all time to protect a people that weren't even his. All of everything I've said today, bringing me to this question, how can we allow ourselves to think he won't do more than that for us, his children? Yeah, but Scott, I haven't been real faithful. I haven't been very good. I haven't grown in faith and devotion like I should have. I feel like I'm under judgment. Did you forget something? Did you forget that God the Son died for you while you were a sinner? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what? One of the descriptions of being a sinner, of sin itself, when, when, when uh, the New Testament writers write about hum- sinful humanity, they talk about us being in a state of enmity with God. That means technically speaking, as sinners, we are enemies of God. And while you were his enemy, he not only liked you, he not only loved you, he died for you. How can you think he wants to hold something back now that you are his child rather than his enemy? Yeah, but I'm not perfect. You were a lot further from perfect when you were his enemy, when you were a sinner. He loves you and wants to do these things for you because you are his children. Praise the worship team. Come up here. Today we're talking about miracles. It's going to get better because we're going to be talking about covenant rights. We're going to be talking about faith. But miracles, and you guys can stand up. You've been sitting a while. Thank you for your patience. This went fast. It went fast for me anyway. I know it always seems to go faster from my perspective than yours. But go ahead and stand. Uh, But miracles, 
are still things that God does. He's still the only one that can, and he delights in doing them, and he loves you. And so today, it's about miracles. There's always an element of faith because you must believe that miracles happen. And if you need a miracle in your body today, I want to pray with you. We'll pray next week, standing on the covenant promises of God. We'll pray the following week uh, based on our faith, which is the one thing that Jesus ultimately points us to. But today, if you believe in miracles and you're God's child, I believe God is going to miraculously heal you if you need a miraculous healing. But let's start with this. God did that tremendous miracle for people who weren't his children. He did it for Joshua, who was. I get it. There was a covenantal relationship there. But ultimately, the, the, the benefit was for Gibeon, not for Israel. He loved you and died for you while you were a sinner. How much more does he desire to do these things for you, loving you as his child? But you must be his child. I want to start there because that's the biggest deal of all because now we really are talking beyond the grave, heaven and hell. And if you've never made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, received him, uh, confessed him as your Lord, received him as your Savior, not gone to church, not gotten to confirmed, I'm not talking about those things, nothing wrong with those things, those are great things, but if you've never personally committed your life to Christ, today's your day. The only way to be in that right relationship, to be considered his people, just to go back and do what we talked about during communion. Recognize that the blood of Christ is what's necessary to wash you clean. Let me pray really quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. I pray if there's anybody in here today who does not know you as Father, does not know Jesus as Lord, that you reveal yourself to him, reveal Jesus to them, and, and cause them to recognize their desperate need for salvation. Create in them, Lord, a, a desperate desire to be your child and reveal to them glorious knowledge of what awaits them as your child. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.